Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Are you ready to go fast forward to the future? Now, before we do that, we have to also take stock of where we are. Now, 2024, a very important year for us. Apart from the fact that in a month's time, it will be the year of the dragon, it is a year of change as well. And so very important for us to say what is going to change. And very, we have, of course, a world that is very much more indebted in terms of government debt levels. We have a world that has gone through a very trying period of inflation and now into disinflation, but those forces have not gone away, whether it's climate change related, labor market related. Inflationary forces are still around. In terms of demographics and geopolitics, this is also a very important social issue that's going on. We are indeed going into a phase of an aging population, but we are also living longer. Singapore, for instance, is a blue ocean, as you might already know. And of course, there is also a lot of change on the technology front. Today, we will bring you fast forward, not just into the fourth revolution in computing, but into the fifth. So stay tuned for the final Michio Kaku presentation as well. Now, let's look back at the year past. And it's always good for us as we look into the next era to look back at what's happened the year before. So some of you who have been to this event will remember this chart. And it was a very different one. It was flipped the other way around. This year, thankfully, we can look back at 2023 as one where we had positive returns almost across all asset classes, apart from some of the markets in Asia, of course. Now, so, but that belies how much volatility had happened in between. Imagine equities, for instance. We had a very strong market propelled really by magnificent seven stocks. And for most part of the year, the rest of the market was not doing so well. But that's, of course, caught up in the last quarter of the year. Now, even fixed income, we see a positive return here. But lo and behold, in the third quarter of this year, we actually had quite a bit of a wobble with the 10-year yields being very volatile. But we had a strong finish. Now, cash, many of you are in cash. Certainly a very safe asset class to be in, but it underperformed most asset classes if we had the chance to look back right now. Now, how about us, the three of us standing here and our teams at the CIO office? What was our report card? The 2023 calls in review. We want to be accountable for what we said, and here it is. In the macro world, I think we forecast that the Fed has a dual mandate, not just on the interest rate front, on the inflation front, but also on the jobs front. And we had held that we will see rate hikes, but the Fed will pause in the middle of the year, and so they did in July. That, I think, we got right. Now, what was a bit unexpected, however, was how volatile the 10-year yields could be. And that really did challenge our call, particularly on duration, especially when we were overweight US treasuries and investment-grade bonds, which tend to be very sensitive to interest rate movements. That certainly was very volatile in Q3, but we held to our guns and it actually performed at the end of the year and actually benefited in terms of fixed income as an asset class. Now, the year of two halves was what we had forecast. We said, look, there will be a very volatile first half, and then there'll be a strong finish in the second. Well, we were partially right. First half, we encountered one of the biggest crises in modern times in terms of the banking world. We had SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and Credit Suisse in Switzerland. Now, ironically, the more that had happened, and we had predicted that, the more the governments actually came in forcefully with policy response, which then propelled markets ahead in terms of performance. 
However, we made also a strong call at the time in the second quarter of 2023 to say, let's go overweight Japan. We were challenged. People were saying, it's already up so much, Jin. Why should we still go overweight Japan? That was in yen terms. In dollar terms, we felt that it was still undervalued. And lo and behold, Japan is one of the best performing markets from the chart you saw earlier on as well. China, we actually doubled down on enthusiasm in Q2 when we saw that growth momentum wasn't as strong. And so that also has been a call that we felt was actually fair to our clients as well. Now, the call on generative AI, I think we deserve a little bit of a feather on the cap, given that we called that out as a transformative technology. But what we maybe didn't expect was how strong the force has been in terms of transforming not just business, but also the markets. And Eli will elaborate a lot more on why this is still a key theme for us. Alternatives was really a, also a very important strategic decision we made in early this year when we incorporated uh, alternatives into our strategic asset allocation. And that's provided a lot of ballast for, your, for more, many of our client portfolios. Now, you know, there was a quote by uh, Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of the US, who said that, well, I like the dreams of the future better than the history of the past. So let's forget about the past and move forward. 2024, it's a new start for all of us. What does this mean? Now, if you ask me today, in terms of 2024, what's changing, Jean? I'll say everything and everywhere. So to make it simple, the four E's. Elections, as Jason mentioned, this is a big year of elections. And certainly with elections, what that implies is leadership change and transformation. A changing of guard across almost every continent means that there will be a new decision realm and a new geopolitical uh, environment that we are entering. The exceptionalism of US. Now we have the next panel which will talk about geopolitics and the implications on business and finance. But think about it, the US has been an exceptional place in terms of US dollar strength, US market strength, and even the growth that has surprised us on the upside despite the challenges. But is that going to change? Our view is we've gone past the peak, the third peak in 50 years of the US dollar. We're going to see the US dollar start to weaken structurally, and this has huge implications in terms of how we invest. Second, in terms of the corporates, they've had a very, very strong environment with excess fiscal and monetary policy. Now, what's the next phase? US companies will have to contend with higher cost of capital, challenges in the economy. But that is not doom and gloom at all. It's actually rich and fertile ground for us as stock pickers, as private market investors, to look at opportunities beyond the market, just the large cap into mid and smaller cap as well, and into different sectors that are growing. And that's really the rich ground that we work on. An economic pivot, what we're talking about from rate hikes to rate cuts, from an economy that has gone through 10 years of uh, deflation all the way to now inflation. I'm talking about Japan, of course. And China, going through a very pivotal change in terms of economic structure, away from property, into services and technology. The evolution in tech, I need not say more. There is generative AI, of course, that we are all very familiar with as a theme now. But today, we'll bring you into the fifth revolution of technology, which is quantum computing as well. Now, let's move on to the next. Now, Manso, when we talk about you know, what's the economic backdrop, we had framed this in scenarios, right, by probabilities. Um, some may ask, does that mean you're hedging yourselves? You know, you're getting all your answers right, even at the beginning. Maybe you can elaborate. 
Thanks very much, Gene, and uh, good morning, everyone. Yeah, so if we start with the US here, you can see that we've outlined three scenarios that we think are likely for 2024. So the first is a soft landing, where the Fed's rate hikes from last year and the year before slow the US economy down, but don't require a recession to get inflation back to the Fed's 2% target. We think that's a 30% probability of this, what we think is a bullish case for markets. Then we have our base case, where we see the US economy also slowing, but unfortunately resulting in a mild recession. We think that there's a 50% chance of that probability. And then the bear case for markets would be a hard landing, where inflation stays high, the Fed can't cut rates, and so the US suffers a deeper downturn. But we only think there's a 20% probability here. Now, the key to all of this is inflation. If you look at the chart here, you can see that core inflation in the US is clearly falling. Now, in the first half of this year, we expect the core inflation rate will fall below 3% in the US. That will give the Fed confidence to start cutting interest rates. So we expect the Fed to make three rate cuts this year by 25 basis points each in June, September, and December. So in two out of our three scenarios, we think the Fed's rate cuts will support risk assets even if there's a mild recession. So that's bullish for sentiment. The only risk case, as I said, is a hard landing where if inflation stays stuck above 3%, then the Fed can't cut rates. But we only think there's a 20% probability of that. Let's move on. Sorry, let's move on to Europe here. So in Europe, you also see growth slowing down. Now, remember last year we had recessions in Europe, and we think growth will be still pretty anemic in both the Eurozone and the UK. But the good news here is if you look at the chart, you can see that inflation is also falling fast in Europe. So we think the European Central Bank and the Bank of England, just like the Fed, will be able to start cutting interest rates from the summer. That will also give support to risk assets in Europe as well. And then if you just turn to Asia, we think that growth in China and Japan will also slow as the reopening tailwinds from last year fade away. Now, if you look at the inflation picture here, in China, consumer prices are actually very weak. So we think the People's Bank of China will support the economy by lowering interest rates further. In contrast, in Japan, we finally have inflation returning after three decades. So we think the BOJ will be, the, sorry, the Bank of Japan will be the only big central bank to raise interest rates this year. We think they'll bring the deposit rate back to 0%. The good news here is the BOJ will remain dovish. They'll keep interest rates on hold then for the rest of the year. That will support risk assets in Japan, particularly the stock market, as it did last year. Now, let's put this all together. This outlook that we have then of slowing growth, high but falling inflation, and central banks cutting interest rates. What does it mean broadly for financial markets? Well, we think there are four major implications here. The first is we think that bond yields will fall. We think that 10-year Treasury yields, having been as high as Gene mentioned at 5% last year, we think bond yields will fall further from 4% now to about 3.25% this year. So that will benefit all fixed-income markets. Secondly, because of recession risks, we think that investors will still favor high-quality bonds. So developed market investment-grade bonds will still remain hedges against recession risks. Thirdly, we think the dollar will weaken. If you look on the, right hand uh, look on the chart here, you can see that there's a clear correlation between the dollar on the one hand 
and US interest rates versus the rest of the world on the other hand. As the Fed cuts rates, we expect the dollar to decline. We think the euro will rise to 1.15 against the dollar, and the Japanese yen will strengthen to 130 against the dollar this year. And lastly, we think that gold will do in this, well in this environment, where central banks are cutting interest rates. We see the yellow metal rising further to new record highs of $2,200 an ounce. So that's the outlook for the, for the major economies and what they mean for markets. But what does this mean for our portfolios? Eli, tell us how we should be positioned in 2024. Thanks, Mansoor. Now, when we talk to our clients as we position for this year, the number one question we get is this, right? On one hand, you are forecasting a mild recession. That's not great for assets. But on the other hand, the Fed is cutting rates, and this is a positive factor. So where does the dust settle in between these two forces? Now, when we look back to our historical models, when inflation is falling from a high level, when the Fed cuts rates with a mild recession in the background, what happens is that earnings will get dented, but on a nominal basis, it will still be positive. And the more powerful force for markets by far is monetary policy, which will set off a strong reflationary effect on asset prices and the economy. And this is a classic reflationary setup. Now, we believe that our clients need to position for this scenario ahead by taking, for now, a moderate overweight stance in their portfolio allocation. And we've done so late in November last year. With the full understanding and expectations that there will be near-term setbacks, there will be short-term pullbacks in, over the year, and we stand ready to add risk as these pullbacks happen. Now, as we position and look for opportunities for 2024, we are very excited because in this scenario of high volatility, but ultimately reflationary environment ahead, investors who have clarity on what's driving markets going forward will find a very fertile investment environment. And we see four key forces driving markets ahead. Now, as Jean has said earlier, this will be one of the most intensive election years in modern history. Elections have long-term impact on markets, and we're going to unpack on where we think some of the implications and opportunities are. Now, second, getting real on returns. And this addresses the fact that as we seek returns in this high volatility environment going forward, it is still very important to be conscious of the two main risks in the backdrop. The first is the fact that inflationary risk still remains very high. And as Mansour has stated earlier, we still see a 20% chance of a hard landing. And it is important to focus on where we think the assets that give the best risk returns are. Third, harnessing the power of sustainability. Now, as we track the data in this area, we are shocked that climate risk is frankly, still continuing unabated, escalating unabated, and we are likely nowhere near the scale of action that's required to resolve this problem. And we are going to talk a little bit about the profound implications of markets and economies going forward. And finally, fast forward to the future, this is our AI theme and the title of our outlook. And we think that in markets, it is imperative 
for investors to really focus on what is moving the needle for the economy, for earnings, for share prices. And as we try to model the impact and the possible parts of AI going forward, given the immense investments already put into the sector, given the applications and the use cases likely to emerge across the economy globally, we think that this will be the foremost top-of-mind theme driving economic creation for our uh, investors' portfolios as we enter 2024 and beyond. And we will unpack a little bit of where we think these opportunities are. And, you know, Gene, to start off, you know, geopolitical risk has been front and center the last few years, and this is set to further intensify this year. Where do we think uh, the implications are going to be? Well, you all heard the stats. 40% of population, more than 40 countries, and 40% of GDP. Now, the important thing to note in terms of the elections this year is not just how the immense scale of it, but the fact that there will be implications, not just at the leadership level, but on the policy level. So there will have implications in terms of where we stand as far as a lot of the um, clear guidelines in terms of monetary policy or fiscal policy. Now, the next slide shows us a very active calendar, starting, of course, in a couple of days this Saturday. The Taiwan elections will really be very pivotal for both US-China tensions, as well as what's happening here in Asia. Now, on Jan 13, Taiwanese voters will go to the polls to elect one of three, three candidates, the DPP, KMT, as well as TPP, which turned out to be a bit of a dark horse that has come up. So this essentially will be watched by the entire world and indeed ourselves as well. Now then, not long after, on Valentine's Day, Indonesia will also be looking at a, electing a new president. President Widodo will be uh, going through a leadership transition and during his reign and regime, we've actually had very stable economic policy and that, again, will be closely watched here in ASEAN and also the rest of Asia. India, a very significant change as well, is, is afoot in May and June, as we see also the elections uh, calendar hot up. And the most consequential of which is, of course, the US elections at the end of the year. Now, is it Biden 2.0 or Trump 2.0? Is there a rematch of the 2020 um, elections coming up? Now, not just the uh, president will be, in, uh, will be elected, there will also be the House of Representatives, senators and governors. So not just are we looking at the precedent, but also whether we get a divided Congress or will, have one, will one party control uh, the entire Congress as well. So that worth implications for a few policies, the most important of which would be the Inflation Reduction Act, a very uh, hallmark of Biden's administration. Will that be at risk? There's implications on the climate change, but also on technology. Now, is that going to be a partial repeal or full repeal should Biden not come into power? The other important policy to know is, of course, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, TCJA, where 21% corporate tax was enforced during the Trump administration. That expires in 2025. So what will happen to that legislation? And, of course, devil's in the detail, and the next panel will really unpack some of these details in terms of policy implications and what this means for us as investors and businesses. Now, one thing that is, has bipartisan support, however, is the attitude towards China. Now, cast your eyes on this Pew Research results, and it's fairly troubling. So, the poll actually asked the question, do you think China is an enemy 
a competitor or a partner. More than 50% of Republicans think that China is an enemy. A little less scary, but Democrats, 60% think that China is a competitor. So needless to say, the chart on the right then shows you how post the Trump administration, call it, or COVID, there has been a huge divergence in terms of opinions on China. This clearly has huge implications for us, whether it's on the policy front, trade policy, investment policy, sanctions, etc. So this, again, will be a pivotal moment for us this year. Now, looking into the next slide, call it serendipity, call it coincidence, call it design. But the fourth year of any presidential uh, reign is actually a period where the market actually does well. So Eli, no coincidence, 2023, equity markets have actually raged forward. You know, all the, the Biden's ending on a strong note, at least on the markets front, but maybe less on the political front. Uh, let's look at the markets. Now, if our clients are asking us today, US markets have already rallied, why are we still positive equities? Your response? Sure, James. I think this ties into our second theme, which relates to asset allocation. And essentially, it speaks to the fact that as we seek returns in 2024 and beyond, now this ultimately reflationary cycle, there's going to be a lot of focus on the upside, but really we think that clients need to take a risk-conscious and risk-adjusted approach as they build out their portfolios. And this addresses two key risks. One, inflation risk in the background uh, remains heightened, and we are not going back to the environment that we were pre-pandemic. And second, growth risk remains heightened as well. And this means that to us, the most attractive assets uh, across uh, the asset universe are in, uh, developed market investment grade bonds, US treasuries. In equities, we favor Japanese equities and high quality bonds as well. And alternatives continues to be a very important diversifier in portfolios. And we also like gold as an important diversifier for portfolios as well. Now, we are taking within the equity space an overweight stunts for the year. And regionally, we favor Japan the most. We think that's the best risk reward in that market, especially on unhedged yen terms. Within sectors, we like the technology sector, sometimes broken down into IT and comm services. We also like the healthcare, consumer staples, and utility sectors as well, as you can also see on the left side of this chart. And we remain cautious on consumer discretionary and also financials. Now, we think that broadly for the US market and, global, and globally, equities will be supportive. And this decomposes into two main factors. As, as you can see on the left, even though a mild recession will dent real earnings on a nominal basis, including inflation. We think that earnings will still come in, in mid-single digits. This is more conservative than the street at 11%, but 5% growth still means that earnings will grow this year. How about earnings multiples? Because that's the multiple that you apply to get the price. Now, as you can see on the chart on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side, the red line shows that earnings multiples unambiguously, historically, rises when the Fed cuts rates, which is the gray line. The only exception is the dot-com bubble, where multiples fell from a historic high level, and that is not the environment they were living in today. Now, Japanese equities, we believe, offer the best risk reward, and this is where we're expressing our overweight. 
the risk reward and EPS growth is very positive as CPI and wages normalize. As Mansoor has said earlier, the BOJ is still very supportive. And we know that on a nominal basis, prices have come, uh, they look high right now, but on a fundamental price-to-earnings multiple basis, Japanese equities are still attractively priced, especially given that corporate government reforms continues to gain traction. I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on the bug bear in our portfolios, Chinese equities. I think I would be stating the obvious if I said the prices were depressed. The key question is, are prices cheap considering the risk in the market. We think that we are rapidly approaching that point. Now, the crux of the situation is, will we eventually see enough stimulus from the Chinese government to turn around uh, the economy? And we know that they have uh, you know, ruled out a bazooka, step change style in stimulus, preferring to add straws to the camel's back until the last straw break the back of the downturn. We think that they have enough policy dry powder, given the government, uh, central government balance sheets, given the policy space, given where rates are, and we think that they have the political will as well. And we will carefully watch for the opportune time to turn positive on China. And finally, one bottom-up approach that has really yielded positive uh, fruits for us is our bottom-up uh, policy screening, which looks for companies that scores high on quality factors, such as resilient earnings, strong balance sheets. And this applies across sectors, regions, and themes. And as you can see on this chart, this has yielded uh, positive returns, outperforming growth since 2021 for our portfolios under our charge. And Mansoor, would you like to talk us through our fixed income view for the year? Thanks very much, Eli. So in fixed income, we also want our clients to be overweight, this asset class now. There's a couple of reasons why. Firstly, we believe we're in a new era where real interest rates are at the highest levels since we saw before the financial crisis. So this means that interest rates adjusted for inflation, when you buy bonds, they will give you income that will beat inflation. This is what we mean by getting real in this world. Now, what we like in the, in the bond universe as well is that central banks cutting interest rates will also give very important capital gains to this universe. So we think that investors should be looking at fixed income very favorably in 2024. Thanks very much, Eli. Now, if we break down the fixed income universe, as we mentioned earlier, we want to be overweight treasuries as well as developed market investment grade bonds. Again, for a couple of reasons here. Firstly, these are the bonds that have the highest duration. So the most sensitive to falling interest rates. And as I mentioned earlier, we think the big central banks will largely be cutting interest rates this year. And then secondly, also, when you think about US Treasuries and developed market investment grade bonds, these are the bonds that will give you hedges against any recession risks. These are safe haven assets that will be in demand. In contrast, we want to have a neutral view on developed market high yield bonds. Yes, the yields are higher in this space, but if there is a recession, then the bond spreads will widen and bondholders will face losses here. Lastly, in terms of emerging markets, we want to be neutral on this space for now, but we do like Latin American bonds, both investment grade and high yield bonds as well. Now, where do we want to be positioned in fixed income? Well, we think our clients should be looking at maturities between eight 
to 15 years. A couple of reasons for this. Firstly, if you think about the duration of a bond, the higher it is, then you're going to benefit more from falling interest rates, as we expect central banks will be cutting this year. And then secondly, if you look on the left-hand chart, you'll see that the 10-year yield, for example, it tends to start declining three to five months before the Fed's first rate cut. We expect that will be in June, so we're already getting into the sweet spot here for longer-term bonds. And just lastly, I want to reiterate the opportunity here in fixed income. If you look at this chart, you can see that bond yields have gone up to historically high levels since the pandemic. So investors who are looking for real returns that beat inflation will be able to get that from fixed income this year. But also, if we're getting central banks cutting interest rates at time of recession risk, there are clear assets here, investment-grade bonds, treasuries that will benefit in this environment. So Eli and I have spoken about equities and fixed income, Gene. Let's go on now to our third theme, which is sustainability. We talked about getting real in terms of returns. I'll say let's get real as well on sustainability. Now, COP28 was a very significant event held in Dubai where the signatories for the first time actually put down on pen to paper and agreed that they will reduce fossil fuels in terms of uh, consumption. Why is this a pressing need? We need not belabor the point. It's the hottest summer already in 2023. Let's not see that continue to escalate. And there are many implications, not just for ourselves as individuals, but businesses and countries, uh, and even countries that might disappear, such as some of the island countries. This is a very important and pressing thing. But for us as investors, what's very important as well is that the International Energy Agency has predicted that we need 2.7 trillion in terms of investments on energy, and half of that 1.7 will go towards renewables. So the opportunities for you as clients is also climate alpha and investment alpha. Where are the opportunities in renewables? Where are the opportunities in EV technology? And going beyond that, fusion as well as nuclear fusion and grid, grid uh, construction as well. So there's a host of opportunities we think that one can also look at in terms of building forward the future. Now the next thing we wanted to discuss is not just on some of our themes, but putting it all together. So we have our asset allocation decision that was made you know, a, a month ago. And we had this, really the tactical asset allocation is that we will go overweight in terms of our, uh, sorry, on generative AI first. I have, I missed that slide. So on generative AI, uh, Eli, I think the important thing for our clients is this year it has all been about the picks and shovels, right? Um, we've invested a lot in the semiconductor makers the, as well as the, the uh, enablers of AI. What's next? Well, thanks, Gene. Now, a lot of Ying has a dispute on AI, so I'll just uh, stick to what we think is, is new, right? Now, as much as, uh, you know, we're conservative folks, now when we try to model out the eventual impact, and scale of this technology wave in this reflationary cycle ahead. We are still surprised by the numbers that we are seeing. Now, AI is not going to be the first tech wave that we've seen. I mean, humanity has experienced the electricity technology wave. We've experienced the internet. These were huge, huge tech cycles. But even today, at a very nascent stage, the traction and adoption numbers and the revenue projection numbers that we are seeing astounds us, and this promises to be the biggest tech wave in terms of impact and scale 
without exaggeration that humanity has ever seen. And when we look back into the rigor of projections across different tech waves, right? Here we show the PC, the internet, the smartphone, and the cloud. The market routinely underestimates the final scale and impact of tech cycles, right? And if a technology is new and radical and broad-based like it is for the internet, we saw initial projections of uh, users in 1996 to 2000 off by more than a factor of two. Now, needless to say, AI will be a key driver of economic value in the, in the uh, economy ahead, especially given the immense scale of uh, investments made so far, more than 200 billion, especially given the use cases and killer applications that will emerge across different pillars of the economy, which really try to filter down to what we think the key ones are here, yeah? and Micho is gonna cover more of this later. And we think that opportunities remain very abundant. Now, there are three key stacks of the AI uh, tech cycle, uh, tech uh, stack in our view. The first, infrastructure. Second, data and models. And third, are applications where we think a lot of value is gonna accrete to. Today, a lot of focus is on the first two stacks, right? I mean, companies like NVIDIA, Microsoft, Google, but the third stack is still very new, early in its cycle, and very little understood. And we think that a lot of opportunities will be discovered there, and we continue to work very hard uh, last year, this year, to help our clients build intelligent, risk-adjusted, and very important central portfolio exposure to this theme. And Gene, let's bring it back to asset allocation for investment strategy. Now, we've worked very hard uh, on this. There's been a lot of debate on uh, why we're positioning clients like this. What were the key questions that we were asking? I would like to ask our clients one question before we start, which is, how many of you have been overweight cash in your portfolios in 2023? Okay. That's good to hear. Well, when we look, I'll bring you a few minutes into our BOS Investment Committee and how our debates go. And trust me, this is a robust debate. So we've asked ourselves the question, Manso, you are predicting a Mao recession, and then we're going to go out there and say we're overweight risk. How are people going to gel those two uh, concepts? Yeah, it's a great question indeed. Um, if you look at our asset allocation, we actually want our clients to be underweight cash now. And we think that's because if we do get a recession, Actually, it'll be the Fed that cuts rates and other central banks, and that will then actually support investor portfolios. But also, if you look at our asset allocation as well, we do have assets in there that act just like cash as safe havens. Indeed, so that's Japanese yen, gold, and I'll touch on the final, which is alternatives. Now, alternatives, as I said, really adds to us a form of diversification but all alternatives are not made equal as well. Now, we've seen that in the last year, the 60-40 portfolio, and in fact, over the last few years, the correlation has been very high. Now, granted, both asset classes rose last year, but we have seen that this is a structural trend in terms of the public markets. Now, by adding uh, alternatives into portfolios, we've seen that it has strengthened the portfolio resilience in spite of two environments, whether it was a high or low inflation. Case in point here is real estate and infrastructure in this chart, being able to generate real returns. 
Now, furthermore, we also have a very rich suite of alternatives right now in the market available to private clients that really speaks to the different cycles as well. So within the alternative asset class, private equity, for instance, is very interesting from a vintage perspective because in a recessionary year, there could be companies that are distressed and there could be even more opportunities for those that are doing well in terms of exit strategy. Private credit may have its challenges, but certainly a very stable source of returns as well. Hedge funds, certain strategies do extremely well in this environment, and, uh, and that also is a rich suite from which we can draw. Finally, real estate and infrastructure able to generate the real returns that we've been asking for. Now, rubber hits the road, and this is what will be spoken out at many of your meetings going forward. Now, there's a, there's a quote again that I have the best way to predict the future is to create it. And certainly by creating this future, it's really to say that us, if you judge our success a year from now, it's not to look at the chart on the league tables, but to see if your portfolios have been generating long-term risk-adjusted returns. By that, we mean stability. By that, we mean that we've avoided some of the key risks and also grasped some of the key opportunities. Starting from the macro front, we need to be conscious that the Fed will start to cut rates. The extent to which the number and the timing is all in question, but the direction of travel is clear. In terms of diversification, we really think that asset allocation is very important for the return of our portfolios, and we've seen that live in the last few years in terms of what concentration risk, whether it was China property or Chinese tech, could have done to our portfolios. And we will not know what the next black swan will be, and that's the nature of the beast, but that's the new era that we live in. Now, themes are very important for us in terms of identifying below the surface where these alpha opportunities are, and finally, risk management, of course, is the name of the game. With that, I invite all of you to go forward and fast forward in the future with us. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Bank of Singapore.